Well, in the past two years, something has changed for me. I'm not sure when the precise moment was, but I know there's something different. That at some point in the last two years, I crossed a bridge. And surprisingly, it wasn't at, at my first funeral. That was a hard moment. It was a brutal moment, but it didn't really change me at the way I've been changed in the last couple of years. And it wasn't the first moment when I was present when someone died. That was brutal. To hear the cry of someone when they become a widow. Yet that moment did not change me the way I've been changed in the last two years. It wasn't a moment where I, I had been present for someone to get the bad diagnosis, the final diagnosis from which they will not recover. Now, I don't know when it was. It was my 30th birthday. It was during the birth of, of one of my two sons. But sometime in the last two years, I crossed a bridge. I came to the inescapable conclusion. I'm going to die. My days are numbered. And you may be sitting there thinking, probably should have learned that a little bit sooner. I feel like it's fairly obvious most human beings are going to die, right? But I'm not talking about I understood it or I knew it as a fact, like someone telling me a lemon is sour. I've tasted it. I know it's deep within myself. And so Indy Wilson, an author, helped give me a voice to what I was feeling He's a younger father like me in similar stage of life like me, the beginning point or the beginning part of his career with young kids at home, lots of dreams, lots of hopes. And he wrote this as he began to wrestle with his own death. He said, as the next decade, decades flick past, my burden will change. I'll begin to ride my bike with no hands, watching my children be what they will be. I will reap what has been sown. I will see the fruit of faith and the fruit of failures. I will labor to live with the joyful fury of a child, but I will be exhausted. My body will decay and break. That part has already begun. I will grow weak, but with the memory of strength, reaching for strength that should be there and is now gone. In the end, I will face the greatest enemy that any man has ever faced, and I will lose. The death will defeat me, and there is nothing I can do about it. My guess is, as you reflect on, on death or your own mortality, you probably land in one of, of a few places. The one, maybe the reality that, that you're going to die, it doesn't affect you. It has not reached deep within your bones yet. You're still on the other side of that bridge. That maybe you're young, right? And death seems so far away. You have so much life ahead of you, so many things you're looking forward to that you just can't relate. And if that's where you are, you need this sermon because at some point, and it may be sooner than you think, your mortality... The, 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 the weakness of life will interrupt. And you'll need to know what the Christian faith has to say about death because it says something you won't find anywhere else. Or maybe death just doesn't bother you. You're living life to the full. Now you've, you just see death as a part of, of life. Maybe you're not a Christian. And all my angst about death is something you just can't relate to, right? You, you get one life, live it up. Why think about death? Just live in the now, in the present. If that's all we have, if this life is all we have, isn't that enough? Why long for more? But I would say, if, if that's where you are, if death doesn't bring you fear, any sadness, any disappointments, any frustration, doesn't unsettle you, then you're rare among humans. And that may be a sign of strength. Maybe it's a sign 
you're stronger than the rest of us. Or maybe it's a sign you're cutting yourself off from something that's that's deeply human. There's a reason we all look at our death with, with some bit of trepidation and fear. And maybe the Christian faith has a more human way to live and look at your own death. Or maybe you hear everything I'm, I'm saying, you're full of fear. The, the reality of death, it's hit you. You know it's coming, and you know there's nothing you can do about it. And it's why you don't think about it. It's why you don't talk about it. And it's why you get really annoyed when people do start talking about it to you. I'm sorry. Maybe that's where you are. And maybe death is just taken from you, and it's, it's taken brutally from you. And it hurts, and it's painful, and it tears at your soul in a way that nothing else has or nothing else could. And then we hear this text, 1 Corinthians 15. And it's clear that Paul, the man who wrote this text, looks at death in a way none of us, I would argue, maybe some of us, but most of us can't and don't. He looks at death with a, a fierce hope, an unshakable joy, but it's not a dismissal or a blind optimism. He looks at death full in the eyes, and yet it doesn't shake him. He still has hope, he still has joy. Which raises the question for me, how? How do you get that unshakable joy, that fierce hope in light of death? Not by being naive or or pushing it away, but looking it square in the face, and yet it not shaking you to your core. How do you get to be like that? Well, the reality is you have to come to grips with, with death itself. And Paul comes to grips about two things about death that we have to come to grips with in order to have that fierce joy, to have that unshakable hope. So let's look at those two things. Paul says, first, death is our enemy. And Paul's certainly not naive about the reality of death. But as as I've come to wrestle with the reality of my own death, I've realized we live in a culture that's very naive about death. That's why it took me about 31 years to figure, oh, I'm actually going to die. This is going to happen. And there's two ways we tend to be naive about death. One is we deny it. Look at how we treat death even now. We We put people who are dying far away from us, behind machines, behind hospital doors. They die hidden. And then we take the corpse and we dress it up. We put makeup on it. We put it in its best clothes. We surround it with flowers and good lighting. And then we all gather and look and say, look how good they look. It's strange until you think. It's just us coping and pushing and denying and, and pushing death as far away from, we, from us as we can. But it didn't used to be like that. Right, 150 years ago, you would die in your bed. And if your loved one died in their bed, you would take them. You would be the one who took them, carried them down the stairs, out into the backyard. You're the one who would dig the grave. You would put them in the ground, and you would be the one who put the dirt back over them. The death was real. It was present. It was not hidden away. And as I think about my own life, I've only served as a pallbearer maybe a couple times. But even then, I was wearing a really nice white glove, holding an ornate box. And I left it at the gravesite before it was lowered into the ground. It seemed so distant so, so far. That we've talked death away. But like paying your taxes, at some point the bill is going to come due. And you have to pay. Whether it's your own death or the death of the people you most love and care for, at some point the bill comes due. We can't deny it. That's not a way to look faith dead on. You'll never have the hope or joy in light of death if you deny it and push it away. The other thing we, we tend to do about death is we diminish it. As a pastor, I, I tend to be around death more than most folks. And so I get to hear a lot of the things, the, the cultural sayings we have around death. that we, we say either to people who have lost someone or to people who are suffering. And, and we, we say all sorts 
of things like death is, is just a natural part of life. It's nothing to be feared. It's peaceful cessation. It's dreamless sleep. They're resting in peace. Maybe this is where you are this morning. Death, it's just the next part of life. It's a part of the journey that we're on. It's natural. And yet, scientifically speaking, there's nothing natural about death. It takes what is good and it decays it. It destroys it until there's no life left there. There is nothing natural about death. But it's not just that. Death, death takes everything from us, all of it. Our possessions, our loves, our family, our friends, everything we give our lives to, our job. At some point, death will wipe everything you know or you love from this earth. And to say that's natural, that that's just a part of life, I would say is to cut yourself off from what it means to be human, right? That we humans, we long to last. We long to matter, to give ourselves, our lives to things that, that are significant or will make a difference in this world, and to say everything you do ultimately won't matter because it will all end in death, to say that's okay or that's natural, that's normal, I think is to cut yourself off from what it, some of the beauty of what it is to be human and to long to matter and to last and to be significant. The responding to death with a cold distance, either by denying it, pushing it away, or by diminishing it, saying it's just a part of life, will never lead you to a life of buoyant hope or fierce joy. You're cutting yourself off from what it means to be human. That you were not meant to acquire all the gifts, the knowledge, the relationships, the family, the friends that you acquire in this life only to lose it all. You're not meant for that. That's not natural. It's not why you work so hard, why you love your kids, your family, your friends so much. We live the way we live because we assume there's more to this life than what we see. We long to matter, to last. So we can respond to death naively, either by denying it or by diminishing it. But the, the Apostle Paul will not let us out with empty cliches about death. He faces the full reality of death as our great enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's an entire chapter devoted to how we as Christians or how I as a Christian should look at my own death. And if you remember back to Easter, we were in the first half of the chapter back in Easter and we, we really focused more in on, on resurrection and Christ being resurrected. But in the second half of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul really focuses in on us. What it means that you and I, if we are in Christ, will be resurrected on the last day. What that means. And so even this morning, we're going to focus in on verses 50 through 58, what Corey read for us. That's Paul's conclusion of this entire chapter. He, he spends this entire time unpacking Christ's resurrection, death itself. And he says, now listen, here's what it all means. And it begins by pointing out how terrible an enemy death is to us. In verse 50, here's where he starts, right? I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The death is the barrier that keeps you and I from the kingdom of God. By the you and I, we are perishable, and death is what makes us perishable, unfit for the kingdom of God. Of God, that Paul is saying death is a sign to all of us that you and I, as we are, are not fit to dwell with God. And I realize that cuts against everything in our culture, right? We assume God just wants to be with everybody and anybody can be with God if they want to be. And yet Paul says here, you are perishable, you're going to die, and it's a sign. You cannot enter the kingdom of God as you are. So why? How? Well, Paul unpacks this more down towards the end of his argument in verse 56 when he begins to, under, to explain, okay, you, you can't enter the kingdom of God as you are. Here's why, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. 
So understand Paul's argument here. In verse 50, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God as you are. You're perishable. And the reason you're perishable is because you sin. The sting of death is, is sin. And the reason I will not enter or cannot enter the kingdom of God as I am is because I sin. Which raises a question, well, why should sin kill us? Right? Why would God make that the punishment? Why is that the line he draws in the sand? It seems excessively harsh, doesn't it? It depends on what sin is. Maybe that's a concept you struggle with. You know, 100 years ago, everyone believed in sin. Today, we think of sin sort of as a bit ridiculous, like that extra piece of pie you had after dinner last night, or it's, it's if, you know, you're really awful and you're terrible and there's nothing good about you. It seems like we, we oscillate between sin being a really shallow thing and it being this really negative, horrible, awful, all the time thing. But before you dismiss sin as a concept, or even sin as the reason you're going to die and you can't enter the kingdom of God, un- understand the way Paul unpacks this theme here. Especially in the, the second half of verse 56, this power of the sin is law. What does he mean by that? The power of sin is a law. If I could sum that up in one sentence, I would say it's this. That you know you don't do everything you should. That you know there are things that you shouldn't do and you go ahead and do them anyway. And you know there are things you should do and you don't do them. And I think that's a point we can all agree on, I hope. I mean, I hope no one here would say, I've done everything I was ever supposed to do from the time I was born until now, actually. I'm running pretty good record at this point. I hope no one would acknowledge that. Right? And not just that you don't live up to God's standards, because those are, are high. I'm, I would say you don't even live up to your own standards. You, all of us can think of, of moments where we said something to someone that was incredibly hurtful. We instantly regretted. We did something we instantly regretted, wish we could take back. Right? We thought something that we instantly wish we would never have thought. How terrible we acted in a certain moment. No one does everything we know we should. And Paul says, that's why you die. The power of the sin is the law. We know what to do and we don't do it. Now I realize we're all Americans, right? And we're built with the idea you can do anything you want to. And there's something really good and beautiful you have to hold on to. But there's something also just not true about that. You cannot do anything you want to. If you could, if you could, let's say it's true, you can do anything you want to, great. Never say a hurtful thing to anyone ever again in your entire life. Actually, don't even ever think a hurtful thought against someone for the rest of your life. Never live only for the approval or praise of other people ever again. Don't ever have another greedy thought again. The next time someone has something you want, don't have a jealous thought. Don't even let jealousy inner. Don't ever again think that you're superior to anyone else. You can't do that right, right? I can't. And that's what Paul says when he means the power of sin is the law. You can't do what you know you ought to do. You don't live up to anyone's standards, not even your own standards. And maybe you hear that and say, okay, well, but God should just forgive us. Yeah, we sin, we make mistakes. Why death? Why this This line in the sand where Paul says, you cannot come into the kingdom of God as you are. Why wouldn't God just forgive us? Why such a high cost? But if you say that, I think you're denying the reality of the enemy of what death is. You're dismissing it. You're diminishing it. That you don't understand how trapped you really are, how trapped I really am. That the reason you, the reason I don't live up to our standards, the reason I don't do the things that I know I should do is because I don't really want to. 
I mean, I can say it, I can talk a good talk, but when it comes to the moment and those decisions to be made, the reality is I want to do what I want to do. And if God just forgives all of, of, of us for that, what good does that do? You and I need a salvation far deeper than God just saying, you know what, don't worry about it, forget it, it's okay, because I'm just going to keep doing it. I need a, a deeper salvation. I need it to be changed far more than some bland forgiveness. The death is our, our great enemy for two reasons. One is it takes everything from us. It will take everything that I give my life to. But more than that, death, this is my, my terrible enemy because it's a final reminder that I am not what I'm supposed to be. But not just that. It's not just that I'm not what I'm supposed to be. It's that I know what I, I'm supposed to be and yet I keep running away from it. I keep running towards death instead of what I'm supposed to be. That's why death is our great enemy. It's... It's not just our, our final destination because we don't have any power over it. We're going to lose our life. It's also because we're running willingly towards it. Away from God, doing the things I know I shouldn't do. Trapped in many ways. And it's in this place. When you see death as your enemy, as the thing that will take everything from you, as your inescapable conclusion that you cannot free yourself from, that you're ready and willing or possible to see death as a gift. Which raises the question, how? Right, death is an enemy. To say death is a gift, I want to be very careful, right? That, that can easily get into some of the trite things we say in our culture. So let me unpack what I mean before you, you jump to what you may think I mean. The death is a gift. Let's look at verse 51 where Paul begins to unpack what death means for the Christian in our bodies, in our lives. Here's what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Your body, as Paul says here, it's breaking down, it's perishable. You know it and I know it. Right? I know it with my own body. I feel it. That, that Our bodies as they are, are not ready and could not enter into heaven anyway. I think of it like this. I, a few weeks ago, I was playing um, a pickup basketball game. Actually, more than a few weeks ago. It was a few months ago. And, and I ended up playing with a bunch of guys who were much better than me. And it was clear, obvious, from the beginning. They were taller than me. They were stronger than me. They were faster than me. They could dunk. Right? I mean, I hadn't touched the rim in my entire life. They could dunk. It was, I, I was clearly outmatched. But I hadn't played in a while. I wanted to play. I wanted to get exercise. So I jumped in the game, and I started doing pretty well. Make a couple shots and playing pretty good defense. Get some, I feel pretty good about myself. And then there's this play where... This guy starts driving down the lane. He gets by his guy. So I, I get in front of him to try and stop him. And he literally just jumps into me to try and dunk over me. And I, I hear about four things pop in my leg. I fall to the ground. And I limped for like two months after that. Right? Because my body is not meant to play that level of basketball. If it ever was, it's certainly not now. Right? And if you get into a game, just speaking athletically, if you get into a game where there are far better athletes than you, you're actually you're in, you're in trouble. You're in danger. You can't compete. They're going to hurt you. And likewise, my body is not strong enough. My body as it is could not endure the kingdom of God. It's not, I'm not strong enough. I'm not right enough for it. There's far too much humility there. Far too much selflessness. Far too much grace and kindness. I would go and just get run over. I'm not ready. I can't enter the kingdom of God with a heart and with a body like this. 
And God knows this, which is why he doesn't just come and say, you know what, you're forgiven, don't worry about it. No, he says, listen, if, if you're going to join me, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to save you, it's going to be everything. Because you can't come into my kingdom like you are. You have, to, you have to change every part of you. You're perishable. You're weak. But God can't just forgive us. That as Paul says, we all need to be changed in an instance. But this is where we struggle. Right, this is where the Corinthians struggle. That in that day, it was sort of thought of ridiculous that the, the Christian teaching of, of physical resurrection. Right, so Paul says, our physical bodies go into the ground and God is going to raise a new physical body back to life. And people are just like, that sounds ridiculous. I mean, look at our bodies. They decay, they break down. At their death, they're weak, they're frail. How in the world could life come back to that? And people just couldn't believe in that. that in fact, basically in any culture, educated people said that is laughable. Even in our Culture. Many Christians even say physical resurrection is a ridiculous idea, which is it's completely antithetical to what Paul is saying. He's not saying you're going to be some spiritual being up in heaven. He's saying you're going to get a new physical body. That he's going to take this body of yours, this body of mine, and make it imperishable. Make it new. Which raises the question, How? How in the world is God going to do that? And Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives an illustration. Because the Corinthians didn't believe this. The Corinthians actually believed they would die and they just have some spiritual existence after that. And Paul's saying, no, you're going to have a physical body in heaven. And this is important. And he says, listen, it's all around you. Evidences of what God's going to do to you is all around you. Think of a seed. You put a seed in the ground, it's just a seed. But in that seed is a flower, it's a plant, it's whatever it is. And once it goes in the ground and it dies, it will shoot up and grow into what was there all along but you couldn't see. Paul's saying that's what it's like with our resurrection. You look at your body now and you see a seed. There's not much there. It's frail, it decays, it will die. But when it goes into the ground, what God's going to do is he's going to raise it back as a flower. It's there right now in you. You don't see it. It's in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit of God, is present in you if you're a Christian. The seed is there. And so Paul draws this picture out further in verse 42 to help us begin to understand what he means by this. So so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. When the seed goes into the ground, the flower is all there. Just the seed has to die first. And in your body now is everything Paul just said, if the Spirit of God is alive in you. Our bodies, they are perishable now. It's obvious. That I've heard it said, you peak physically at the age of 20, and it's just downhill from there. Right? So most of us, we're living, we're decaying. Right? We're decaying flesh before our eyes. It's downhill from 20. And, and, and yet, in the new creation, our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. There will be no decay. There will be no highest moment. It will only get better. We'll be raised imperishable. The, our bodies are sown in dishonor, but they will be raised in glory. The, the Bible word for glory just means, it means weighty. It means heavy, significant. The, in this life, we're shadows, right? We know what to do, but we can't do it. We long to do the right thing, but we so often can't be or do what we long to be or do. In this life, we're, we're shadows, 
One of my favorite musicians, artists, Sufian Stevens, the music speaks to this in a powerful way. He released an album a few months ago that was basically an entire album on the reflection of the death of his mother. It's called Carrie and Lowell. And as he reflected not only on his mom's death, but also his, on his own death, he speaks to how you and I were anything but glorious now. And here's what he says in one of his songs. So, so, we can, so can we pretend sweetly before the mystery ends. I am a man with a heart that offends with its lonely and greedy demands. There's only a shadow of me. In a manner of speaking, I'm dead. And that I'm, in, I'm anything but glorious now. A heart that offends, greedy demands on others. That even on my best day, I'm a shadow of what God intended me to be when he made me and created me. And Paul's saying here, through Christ, you and I will be raised to glory, cleaned. We'll reflect perfectly the image of God. We'll be everything that God intended us to be in the first place when he made us. And I've heard one pastor say, if you and I saw a glimpse of what we'll be in the new creation with our resurrected bodies, you and I would be tempted to worship ourselves. That what's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Now our bodies then were sown in weakness, but were raised in power. We're sown in natural body, but raised a spiritual body. And what's important there is, is what Paul means by spiritual is not non-physical. It's not a, a non-physical body. What he uses there is a word that he's referred back to as the, the body Jesus had when Jesus was resurrected. That he's saying we're going to have the same type of body Jesus had at his resurrection. He says this explicitly in verse 49 where he says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, of Adam, the first human being who was weak and frail in sin, so we are like Adam now in this life, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We shall have a body like Christ's. And that's, that's a part we cannot miss because this is where, the Christ, where Christianity says something that no religion, other religion says, that our salvation in Christ is both personal and physical. It's not just a forgiveness of sin. It's personal and it's physical. It's, it's physical. And at Jesus' resurrection, he laughed, he ate. He talked to his disciples. And so will we. In the new creation, we'll eat, we'll drink, we'll play, we'll hug, we'll dance. Everything you love in this life, with your physical body, you'll do in the new creation. And salvation doesn't just take care of your guilt, your sin. It takes care of your body, which is perishable and decaying and weak. But our salvation isn't just physical, it's also personal. Right? The people recognized Jesus after he was resurrected. That we're not, as, as some religions say, just a drop in the ocean. And when we die, we go back into the ocean and lose our individuality. No, people recognize Jesus. And there's this beautiful moment when Jesus, after he's resurrected, and, and one of his disciples didn't recognize him. And when Mary finally recognized him, he rec she recognized him because Jesus said her name. And like Jesus was recognized in the new creation, so will you. And we'll go up to one another and we'll say, I saw glimpses of this on earth. How beautiful, how glorious you could be. And here you are. Our salvation as Christians is both physical, it's personal. It's the good news we have that, that, that we can look at death as a gift as Christians. Not because it's not our enemy, it is. Not because it's not terrible, it is. But because, as the poet George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner and now for us in Christ is a gardener. Our seed is planted and a new plant will come. And so death is both a terrible enemy to hate, but it's also a gift and as we reflect on that, as Paul reflects on that in 1 Corinthians 15, it leads him to do two things. Two responses that all of us should have if you're in Christ to death. The first being we can taunt death. 
Look at verse 40, 54 and 55. These are two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? All right, and there's some reality in which Paul says this. It's ridiculous. O death, where is your victory? Death's victory is total. It takes everything from us. It will get me and there's nothing I can do about it. O death, where is your sting? Those of us who have lost people we love, we can speak easily to what death's sting does to us. It destroys us and yet Paul taunts death here. Not naively. Not shallowly, but because Paul knows the gospel, the good news. And if you remember back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, back several weeks ago, when Paul started this chapter and wanted to remind the Corinthians of all the good news they have, the gospel we have as Christians, he says, remember, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That death has no victory or no sting in us Because of that day when Christ went into the tomb and came out three days later. Our debt is paid and his tomb is empty, which means so will mine. So we can taunt death. That's why we sang the song Absent from Flesh earlier. It's one of my favorite songs. I don't know why. It's sort of at the beginning of this this process for me of of realizing I was going to die. And I love it because it's a taunt of death, right? And my goal one day is, is to sing that song and to climb into my coffin and die and then bury me. Those are my last words. Preferably not today, but whenever, right? To sing, this failing body I now resign. Go ahead, angels, point my way. Because what's, raised, what's sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What's sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What's sown in weakness will be raised in power. So I can taunt death. I can sing at it with some soul, some arrogance, but only because Christ's grave is empty. And so let us be a people that taunt death. Let's speak against it, knowing it holds nothing against us because of Christ. So Paul taunts death, but then he points out in verse 58, you and I, we can work hard. All right, the verse 58, another important verse for us as Christians. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And there are two levels in which this is true. The first is that nothing you do for Christ is in vain. No contribution to the church, no time you share the gospel with a friend, no time that you point people to Jesus, is it in vain? Because his tomb is empty. And any time people receive that work, that news, it will not be, will not be destroyed. It can't be taken away. Because Christ's tomb is empty. Death is defeated. And everything you give your life to now, it has meaning and significance because this world has a future in Christ. But it's not just working for the church or, or giving to the church or sharing the gospel that we can work hard at. It's also that, that everything good will last. That our Christian hope, it's resurrection, right? It's not that, the, that Paul's not saying here the earth is going to burn up and then we're going to go somewhere else. No, Paul's saying our physical bodies will be resurrected back to life, that the physical matters, that this world will be recreated. That at the end of all time in Revelation 21 and 22, when God speaks from his throne. He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. Which means everything you give to your, your life to in this life, your vocation, your job, your family, your friends, it all matters because it all will last in some way into the new creation. The N.T. Wright puts it this way. This is really helpful. He says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. 
That what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, and until the day we leave it behind altogether, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. That everything good will last, which means this week at work, work hard and work well, because your contribution matters. Right? We're not just biding time till we get to go to heaven. We get to begin to already work in a kingdom that is breaking into this world now because Christ's tomb is empty, which means his power has invaded this earth already. So work hard. And whatever you do, whether it's at home, whether it's your vocation, whether it's at the workplace, that this world will be made new. You and I will be made new. And isn't that what we long for most? Right? Isn't that underneath all the diets we try, the makeup we put on, the materialism we pursue to always have a new thing, to have a new enjoyment, a new passion. Behind all those things is the reality that you and I know we were not made for this place. We were not made for a place where everything we have decays or even we ourselves decay. You and I were not meant for a grave. I think that's why Jesus saved us by facing death himself, by going to a cross, being laid in a tomb, having the, seal, the, the tomb pulled over and sealed shut so that he could break out three days later and say to a world, death no longer has any victory. Death no longer need have any sting. So when you think about death, do you have that, that fierce hope, that unshakable joy? Do you know Jesus? Can you taunt death? Will you say at the end, go ahead, bury me six feet under. Put me in the tomb, roll the stone over and seal it shut. Because I know the person who will come one day and roll it away and call me by my name. Let's pray.